1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Welcome to Badass Women's Hours Podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Emma Sexton, and Natalie Campbell. This week we meet the creator of Curry and Cancer, a blog helping women of Southeast Asian origin. Talk about their cancer diagnosis. And we meet a woman who was on Saddam Hussein's hit list, Escape, and now helps female survivors of ISIS start new lives. Underwear,
2: hair, many imitators, but no one prepares. Badass
0: Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One,
2: two, three, four! Can you imagine...
0: Having to explain to your parent what cancer was after you had just been diagnosed with it, our next guest did, she's in the studio now, Simon Thompson, lovely to meet you, thank you so much for being here. Lovely to be here ladies. So tell us a little bit about what you're going through right now, tell us about the cancer you were diagnosed with.
3: Well, um, back in April this year, um, after a few kind of sickness symptoms, so I had up a upper back pain and um, upper chest swelling Um, I was diagnosed with stage four non-small cell lung cancer.
0: Wow. (laughs) And had you tell us how did you go to your GP and say I'm not feeling very well what happened?
3: Um, Yeah so I basically had what looked like a swollen gland Mm -hmm. and um, essentially it was actually a tumour in my lymph node it turned out to be but yeah I had fatigue um, and then upper back pain And those were the only signs with with the cancer. And then when I went to the GP, I got my blood tested and my thyroid was playing up. So she thought it could be goiter, which is like overactive thyroid or whatever. Um, And the kind of symptoms were kind of playing up and being consistent with that. Um, So, yeah, the swelling increased and it got to the point where I was experiencing breathlessness in my sleep. And I uh, went to the GP after a private scan, uh, which showed that there was nothing wrong with my thyroid. Um, and the GP said, all right, get yourself to A&E. There's something really wrong. I'm really concerned about your breathing. So, yeah, went to A&E and they gave me a CT scan. And there it was. I had I had masses in my lymph node, um, my lung, uh, bone and liver. Wow. So, yeah, and they got to work really quickly. So once the doctors know, you know, Mm -hmm. this this could be cancer, they worked really fast, they took biopsies, et cetera. Uh, And within, I think it's two to three weeks, I think they were a bit like, are you sure this is lung cancer? (laughs) The the people that deal with the biopsies were a bit strange about coming back very quickly. Uh, But, yeah, within three weeks, I knew that it was stage four lung cancer. It was really shocking. Like, even the doctors wouldn't.
4: Because you're quite, you're very young to get lung cancer or that that type of lung cancer, is that right? Yeah, it is quite,
3: um, I am a rare case. So I think about 5% of cases are under 40. Mm -hmm. So I'm the exception. Um, So, but it's on the rise in females. And in the last three years as well, you'll find that up to 28% of cases are now non-smoking.
4: Really? Do they know what's causing that at all?
3: Um, I think... There's still, because this is this is like new statistics that have just mm. come out in the last few weeks from Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation. I think it's environmental. It's yeah. got to be air pollution. It's got to be bio reasons why it's on the rise, especially in non-smokers mm-hmm. and So females. were you a smoker or no? Um I dabbled with cigarettes in my 20s, like every yeah. other 20-something Sweetly. year old. Yeah. Um I hadn't been smoking for about two to three years.
5: Wow.
3: Yeah, so it got me.
5: And so just just listening to you as you were from the first time you went to your GP and said, you know, there's sort of swelling here and uh, back pain to getting to A&E. Did you at any point think there was something wrong other than the breathlessness? Because I just... I've always thought that if you had cancer, and I feel like this is leading into the story about your mum saying, "Well, what is it?" My assumption would be that you'd know, you'd be quite ill, you'd be quite sick, especially if it was lung cancer. But it it sounds like you know you could have probably gone a bit longer without yeah knowing. So lung cancer, it, um, in particular, it's usually staged quite late because
3: mm. it doesn't present itself very well. Mm. Uh, it's quite a tricky one because I think with things like breast cancer, prostate cancer, you can you know copper fill grab your balls <laughs> you know there's things there's lumps and bumps you can look out for mm. but with lung cancer it's obviously it's a gland mm. and it's
5: it's just very tricky
3: to detect
5: okay to the back so lung cancer is connected to glands mm-hmm. okay so i didn't know that yeah so. it's
3: very it's like the you know there's tumors in my body but i've never felt physical tumors apart from when it's metastasized to my lymph node okay which yeah. is you know that was one of the first indications that something was wrong and
5: where is the lymph node
3: so you have lymph flows all through your... your You have a lymphatic system yeah. in your body. So this one in particular was near my neck.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so Nat mentioned this. When you, um, when you were diagnosed, you told your parents or you told your mum, what, what was her reaction?
3: So her reaction was she just thought I had the flu or something. She didn't realise... She didn't understand what lung cancer was. It's not that she's, you know thick or anything she just mm-hmm. lacked uh, medical knowledge and you'd find that with a lot of immigrant parents um, she'd come here in the 80s raised four children
0: where did she come from
3: uh, she's from Pakistan originally yeah. so uh, both my parents are Pakistani and you know she's just not she just lacks health knowledge mm-hmm. and health awareness whereas I'm obviously born here I know what cancer is. Unfortunately, and I kind of actually admired her ignorance to the disease. <laughs> almost, she was like, "Oh, it's okay, you know, you'll be fine." And I was like, "Mum, it's incurable. It's not going to go anywhere." Like, obviously, at the time, I was quite sick, so just trying to get across like the severity of what I had mm. was quite
0: difficult. On top of dealing with the cancer itself, yeah. and did she get to a point of understanding? What was her reaction then? Um, there was,
3: I mean, there's a moment. I think I've, I've so I've got a blog covering cancer. And I wrote about um, my experience with that. And there was a moment where she was massaging my back and it was very, very swollen. And she could tell that it was swollen from internal... You know, it wasn't just like an external swelling. And then that's when she... I had a skin rash at the time. And she turned around and she said, I understand, like, the spots are inside you. And that was her Mm -hmm. way of understanding that that I had growths or tumours inside, Mm -hmm. as opposed to... Like, at the time, I take this... um, a targeted therapy drug called a fatinib, and uh, that just gives me a, like a quite a manageable skin rash. You can see, you know, I live with it. But um, at the time, she just thought I had chickenpox. Wow! <laughs> so you know, I had a lot to contend with, and I think it's just it's just health awareness in the South Asian community. I think you find that in a lot of BAME communities anyway. Yep. There is a lack of understanding, especially
0: when it comes to certain diseases, and a level of ignorance as well we're going to keep talking to Saima here on Badass Women's Hour XL.
6: Badass Women's Hour XL
7: on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking.
0: Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. We're talking to Saima Thompson about being diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, So you said you worked through the diagnosis. Where are you with it now? What treatment have you been through and how are you feeling now? So, um... I had, between the oncologist tell me, telling
3: me the diagnosis and the treatment, I had two hours and I had my first radiotherapy wow. session. And I didn't Did even they, know what wow. it meant.
0: Did they tell you, um, was that literally like, okay, we're getting you in now because otherwise you're going to die?
3: No, I think they were just being efficient. They were like, <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got <laughs> oh, a slot, so must <laughs> zap the thing now. Um, and then, yeah, so I had five radiotherapy sessions to zap my kind of primary lung tumour. The naughty one. Um, And then from there on, I saw a specialist oncologist, and I'm on a treatment plan, which is a pill a day, which sounds really easy. I'll call it a chemo pill because the side effects are quite, you know. Yeah. They are hard to manage at times, so I take uh, antibiotics to counter them, and I get diarrhoea, I get a skin rash, I get a kind of sore nail bed. Um But apart from that, I am stable health-wise, so um, generally in the cancer community, they say you're as good as your last scan. So my last scan showed stability, um, no growth.
0: So, you know, I'm living well. And so can you then live with it? Is that... What stability is? Do they give you, I mean, sorry to be dark, but do they give you a prognosis on it? Uh,
3: so the initial prognosis was six to 12 months without treatment. Wow. Yeah. So I was pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. And then they said, the doctor said two to three years with treatment. But again, statistics are just statistics. Yeah. Um, and it's changing constantly every day. So you've got things like immunotherapy. You've got so many new advances mm. every day in the, you know, in the cancer world. So yeah. I live in hope that, you know, maybe yeah. I can live longer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. have to go with it
0: you're very blasé about it i have to say i'm I'm like i'm in awe of you you're just it seems like you've got a really good handle on just being here and now
3: yeah i'd say um that's that it took a lot of effort though yeah i've had therapy for um you know i say with any stage four diagnosis i think people you need therapy you need to process that because your mortality is literally in front of you Mm. um and coping with that sort of You know diagnosis especially at my age I was just like you know I was just kind of thriving I was finding myself I run a restaurant in South London uh, called Masala Walla Cafe and I was just finding my feet and I was actually just opened a second business just before the diagnosis so I was kind of like on my way to like you know achieving my kind of entrepreneurial dreams and then it really did you know cliche take the rug under my feet and I had to kind of go back to zero again and go right what do I do now? You know, mm. so I had to close uh, the new business. It was a project that I'd got involved. Um, I got involved with another business partner. Um, I had to close and just the family business is still here to this day. Um, but yeah, I had to get therapy. I was actually suffering with panic attacks at the time yeah. as well. Uh, you know, it's a high anxiety I can imagine. To deal
4: with. Yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. stressful. Yeah <laughs> how how has it changed? the diagnosis changed your mm. attitude and how you are living life? Because, like you say, you're living with cancer now, and you're doing really, really well. Um, how? Uh, what decisions do you make differently now? Mm. Your, is your outlook radically changed in terms of how you're running your business, how you're living your life?
3: I think I am a lot more. I'm like there's a bigger picture now guys you know it's when you go, when you go through when you go through cancer like this it does just open up your eyes to how, fra- how fragile we all are and how vulnerable we can all be and I'm I'm looking to be more kinder more loving and I, I can just see the bigger picture now. I'm not worried about the kind of the day-to-day rigmaroles. So obviously, yeah, I still get upset if I get a paper cut, like everyone else. <laughs> you know, that's upsetting. But it's just like I think it just it does bring you back to the present a little bit. And I'm going like I have my plans till Christmas. Mm-hmm. I'm opening up the January slowly. You know, I turn thirty in January. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a great time. But I'm just keeping it pretty micro. Whereas maybe before I'd be a bit more ambitious. I'd be like, right, I'm going Glastonbury. I'm like, yeah. now I'm like, I'm not sure if I can make Glastonbury. <laughs> Let's just pencil that in, <laughs> shall we?
5: <laughs>
3: so, yeah.
5: Amazing. And you in terms of how you communicate with your mum on a daily basis about how well you're feeling or not feeling, is that just an ongoing journey? And is it the same for other family members too? My sister, actually,
3: one of my sisters is with me today, Nafisa. Um my family are my worlds. I'm like ridiculously close to them. Uh, I have three sisters and my mom, so we're like a bit of a pack. Um we're like the Spice Girls but without the different hair colors. <laughs> um my mum, I feel a lot closer to her but, and I feel like she understands more. Mm-hmm. Um because like before we m- probably bicker about silly things about the business, so I actually run the re- um my restaurant with her. Right. So it's her recipes, home cooking, uh, Pakistani food. Um, and yeah, we'd like bicker about silly things like the menu. She'd be like, no, we're going to do this. And, you know, stuff like that. But now it's a bit like, it's, it's a lot more loving, mm-hmm. our relationship. And me and my sisters, I think just the way I'm coping with it, I'm, I hope it it kind of filters out to them and they will find some reason with this because it's, it's heavy stuff, mm-hmm. cancer. I'm not, maybe I'm smiling and stuff, but it is heavy. And I've, I've had to you know, do a lot of work to, you know, get to this point um, and accept the diagnosis. So I think, yeah, hopefully my positivity will just kind of fill around
5: them. Yeah. I was listening to you, but I was also saying to Harriet, I think we should bring your sister in.
3: Yeah.
5: Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if she's willing, uh, the 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 offer's there for her to pop oh, in and you can give her yeah, version. Yeah, come in, come in, come in and say come hi. you know, you said how she's close like, you what? are to your to your to your I family. We just have a glass of wine, <laughs> 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 Hi, welcome. Oh, like oh, join the come mic.
0: Oh. mic. Um, we'd love Yay. to hear from you if you're able to kind of position yourself in front What's of the time? microphone. <laughs> yeah. um, just how it was for you when your when your sister got this diagnosis and she told you about it. How did it change things for you?
1: Um, I think one way to put it was, um, before the diagnosis, I felt like I felt like I was asleep. Um, pre-diagnosis, and then following that, um, I feel like we've just gone through such a journey this year that I've learnt so much. So I'm 22. And I just feel so wise beyond my years because I've had to share this journey with, like, my three older sisters Aww. and just learn so much about ourselves as well as um, how how you should go about life, really. Mm-hmm. And, like, cutting out um, kind of negative energies and negative people and just focusing on what's important. Um, so that's just, it's actually been such a great year at the same time. It's been a shock, but... Um, it's been really good as well, the way we've managed it and gone through this whole um, stage of acceptance.
0: Has it made you closer?
1: So I didn't think this was possible because we were already really close, but I'd say yes, like much closer,
0: yeah. big time. And yeah. um, Simon, what do you think is, I guess, what would you like other people who are going through a similar experience or whose family are going through a similar experience to kind of learn or take away from them? I think... In life, you know, we, like
3: my sister said, sleepwalking. Yeah. I think when, until you've had some sort of life shock, you're almost sleepwalking. But we need to realise that every day is a gift. Mm. And I suppose our, my experience, I say our experiences as a family, every day is a gift, it really is. And just to be more purposeful and meaningful and, and, and willing to share with other people that's that's what's going to make you feel like you're going to have no regrets later on in life you know when you're when you if you you obviously grace with old age i'm not sure if i will be but you know and you look back on your life um usually the regrets are going to be about love yeah right it's about it's about love that's what life is all about and um that's what i'm learning already at the age of 29 i think people sometimes go through their whole life and they don't have this lesson Mm -hmm. um but obviously we've been blessed with this lesson now yeah
0: you, has it made you more aware of your own health are you does it, has it worried you has it made you kind of think about what,
4: how um, you look after yourself
0: just knowing the statistic itself that one in
1: two people will be affected by cancer that was a shock because I thought obviously it didn't hit as many people and to be honest before the diagnosis I didn't know anyone who was young with cancer mm-hmm. um, That that really got to me it did get me mm-hmm. reflecting on how it could hit anyone um, and it made it a reality um in terms of health i think me and my sisters we've always kind of been conscious about you know exercising yeah. and um just eating well really because um, obviously food for us is a very big thing of yeah. course with the restaurant so um it's only just reinforced our thoughts
0: on that yeah and sammy you started a blog to talk about it curry and cancer how has that helped you so I started it as a way to kind of
3: process my thoughts. Um, so i talk about all, th- all sorts of things on there because cancer touches all, all you know, all elements okay. of your life. So I, I spoke about the business, you know, how to close something down and how I got on with that. Um, I spoke about family, I spoke about obviously speaking to my mum, you know my culture which was a big thing as well because I found that there wasn't enough kind of BME voices um, when it comes to illness Mm. I feel like um, you know black Asian ethnic women and men um, have a level of fear when it comes to talking about illness you know we don't want to kind of come across as weak Um, coming from immigrant communities there's a lot of uh, confusion Um, so I spoke about those experiences and most recently I spoke about acceptance so again it's like a it's a progressive thing every time I kind of get inspired by uh, my experiences you know being on the other side um, I'll just kind of share words and
0: do you think illness is more hidden in those black Asian minority ethnic communities do is it just that it's not talked about or is it that it's kind of we'll just deal with it at home
3: um I think it's not talked about enough. I think the conversations aren't being had. And um, it goes to show because I think, you know, for me, you know, I'm just one example of so many stories out there. There's so many Asian black women, men. um, And, you know, especially in the Afro-Caribbean communities, um, you know, one in four men are going to get prostate cancer. So again those conversations aren't being had because men are very proud they're very um, you know alpha male typically um, and we can't get away from that we need to have these conversations Um, the the lung cancer that I have in particular is the EGFR mutation it's most common in non-smoking Asian women you know But I didn't really, I thought, I thought only white people got cancer. I genuinely (laughs) did because the media and the material say so. Um, There's just not enough um, (laughs) diversity in illness.
4: (laughs) It's a good point though. Like you say, if you're thinking, if you're not seeing anything advertised Mm. or talked about and what you're seeing, then you would go, well, this this is probably something that's not going to affect me, wouldn't you? Yeah. I was thinking when you said
0: that stat about prostate cancer and I was thinking my understanding of prostate cancer is Movember, which is a great charity grow a moustache thing in November that goes on, but is entirely run and, covered and promoted by white, white men by yeah. white men
3: but yeah. the real problems are in afro-caribbean communities yeah. and i think um I, I was speaking to um errol McKellar, who runs a foundation from his uh, garage in east london so <laughs> i could talk about him so he basically he started giving mot discounts to his customers for uh, getting their prostate checked
4: yes i've heard about him yes amazing man yeah, yeah and yeah. he said
3: that the stats are even worse back in the the homelands in jamaica yeah. Um, in the
5: Caribbean, um, it's up to one in three to one in two Wow, okay. men. Yeah. I think men would rather not get checks. And I say, we didn't actually say that my granddad had prostate cancer until he'd gone through all of the treatment and was cleared. And then we were like, oh, by the way, Uncle Baba, we call him Uncle Baba, had yeah. prostate cancer. But while he had it, we just didn't talk that's about it. Thing. Yeah. yeah.
4: Did he not want to talk about it? Was it just as a family, you didn't want to talk about it?
5: He didn't want to talk about it. Mm. The only reason we spoke about it was because the medication that he was on made him angry. Mm-hmm. And his personality was just different. And so we sort of had to say, well, he's, he's on this medication. But yeah, as a family, it was sort of, yeah, his prostate levels are high, is what we'd say. Mm. Do you think
0: that's changed the attitude of the men in your family to how do i get checked how do i look after myself no because
5: my uncle had bowel cancer and again he uh, so they in fact they both had the cancer at the same time yeah. wow and he pretty much was like um we just don't, don't we, mention it once he had the surgery we didn't mention it until he got the all clear and a year later he sent and sort of an i've gone all clear text message yeah. and then we were wow. sent back great and no one's ever mentioned it since. And only talking about it, I'm like, hmm, how do I broach this around the Christmas dinner table this year? Uh, m- my other uncle was in hospital with pneumonia and, you know, he tried to check himself out. So it is, it's, you know, it's uh, as in he refused to stay in hospital even yeah. though he knew he had pneumonia. Wow. And he would never get his prostate checked. He said it, he'd rather just die. Wow. Yeah. So everything, I, is- everything you're saying it resonates.
3: Yeah. It's, it's such a treatable cancer as well. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's just amazing to hear that from just, you know, a conversation with you. Mm. So there's just so many stories out there. Mm. As soon as I kind of came out, it's a coming out, right? It's yeah. a coming out thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my auntie told me that her mother had breast cancer twice and her father actually died of bone cancer. And we're quite close to her, you know, on a, wow. you know, to the point where she makes pickles for my restaurant.
1: <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> you know,
3: and we're close to her. It's not like yeah. random auntie number five. Yeah. Yeah. It's I know this woman and she never, ever told me the cause of death. For her mm. father, wow. So, it, mm. how am I to know if we're not having these conversations amongst our families and communities yeah. and mm.
0: friends? Mm. What do you think stops it? Is it? Oh, I so I guess for me, my my kind of lack of understanding point is, what is it that makes it unacceptable to talk about?
3: <sighs> well, there's a few factors. I'd say this shame. Yeah. so there's a shame factor everyone wants to kind of show their best side and i think that goes for all yeah. cultures anyway people Absolutely. don't want to talk about when they're down and out yeah um i think there's an immigrant mentality we yeah. don't want to show weakness and that mm-hmm. kind of rubs off on the the, the, the generation the, below. the offsprings as yeah. well mm-hmm. so i'm second generation pakistani yeah. and my dad was very much like you know he came here age 15 uh worked in the paper mills then was yeah. an entrepreneur he worked really really hard we never saw him um And then that kind of rubs off on you as well. And Mm. you don't want to show weakness, I suppose. And you want to kind of leaven up to your kind of Mm -hmm. white peers. Um, And then, again, there's a lack of knowledge um, with my mother, obviously not knowing what cancer was. um, Because, again, not not health savvy. Um, Our elders we're talking the generation that have come here like in the 80s and 70s you know it's changing now and that's what i feel like i'm i'm here i'm born i'm you know from gravesend in kent yeah so i feel like you know times are changing but very slowly because Mm -hmm. we still have that kind of ingrained it's like a deep ingrained mentality um of what you know what we should we should and shouldn't talk about you know in my culture particular there's a saying uh which is what will they say yeah you know and that's very like it's, it's hard to kind of deprogram that mentality. Yeah.
4: I think Unlike- also cancer is a, cancer's a very difficult topic to talk about, and mm. I feel like you know you're on their, their podcast soon. That's um, with Deborah James and uh, Lauren talking about cancer more. But I feel like it's, like it's gonna be one in two of us, and if we don't get comfortable around talking about the cancer conversation, people will die unnecessarily. But there yeah. is this taboo about it because I think people automatically just hear the word cancer and they go straight to the worst case scenario. But actually, like you say, treatments are better. There's a majority of people are living really well with cancer. Um and you know they're the conversations we need to be to be having. But I think there's just this really dark fear around the C word, isn't there, for everybody?
3: We've got to it's it's a disease, that's all it is essentially. Yeah. We have to change what it means. Um I thought I was gonna die straight away when I got the diagnosis because I didn't know what you know what it meant to live with it. But I am living with it now. And through the internet, which is amazing, I've found people like Deborah James yeah. and yeah. you know Laura Mahon. Um after a few months of being in the woods luckily it was like okay i'm young check the internet out what's happening out mm. there there is a community online which is fantastic um and you can live with it
0: that's the right. point mm. uh, we've actually got michelle on the line her mother-in-law has cancer michelle what's happening
7: with your family well this is a really new diagnosis for us and and i have to say i've i've literally just turned the radio on um seema and and your story is is so sad um but so similar to, to what my mother-in-law is currently experiencing. She's 74, so mm. considerably older. Um, but I, I, I feel awkward ringing because, I you know, you can't compare the ages, but she's she had lumps come up on her neck. That was one of the first things that yeah. she noticed. Mm. I didn't hear all of your story, so I'm not entirely sure how you you realize that you you were ill but um she went to the doctors and they did scans and hers is also lung cancer she's been told stage four the issue is with us is that she lives in spain and um she's adamant that she's going to have a treatment over there she thinks her her doctors over there are going to give her this miracle tablet that's perhaps going to give her another 10 years it's completely unrealistic the size of the tumor in her chest is pushing against her esophagus Um, she's got grandchildren over here and we're trying to convince her to come back and have her treatment in the UK so she can be with loved ones the only person she's got over there is her husband and and some friends Um, but she's adamant that she's going to have her treatment over there we've we've got no realistic idea of what her prognosis is the doctor unhelpfully really said one to two years and she's grabbed on the two years and she thinks if her medication works she will have longer I'm thinking that it's probably yeah. in a more progressive state than you know she's not eating she's really you know
0: it's
7: it's
3: so difficult yeah. I mean you know obviously I'm like yeah. on the other side of it so it's you know for me I'm trying to empathise with my family as well as they go through things. I think the first thing is that you need to um, respect her wishes. Obviously, she's been quite dramatic. And, it's you know, the circumstances are quite severe. But respect her wishes at this stage because, you know, it is her cancer. It's mm-hmm. so difficult for you as a loved one to you know grasp hold of that but i would say you know go go with what what she wants and that's if that's her wish to be there and you obviously you said you know she's got a husband and she's got friends when it comes to struggling just obviously just be there for her and just let her know that you're there and when it comes to a struggle for her then then make those sorts of arrangements to possibly you know have her by your side it's so difficult obviously having a loved one overseas like that
0: oh so that's fabulous advice thank you and I think you're totally right it is it's difficult, but you've mm. got to let people go through it, I guess, in their own way. Michelle, I hope that was helpful. Thank you so much for sharing with us. We really appreciate it. Uh Simon, we've loved having you on. Thank you so yeah, much. Amazing if people want to read your blog, find out more about you, where should they be looking?
3: So um I'm on
0: Instagram,
3: Facebook, Twitter. Uh, it's at Sakari and Cancer. Uh, the blog is www curryandcancer.com because no one else took it <laughs> 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 and uh, my restaurant is in Broccoli in South London Masala Walla Cafe and that's uh, www.masalawallacafe.co.uk uh, at Masala Walla Cafe thanks ladies thank you, thanks. you so thank much, you. much.
2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ooh. The Vampire
6: Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour Excel on Talk Radio.
0: Sometimes you hear a life story and you're like, I feel like I'm not hearing this correctly. So I want to take you back to kind of 1986, uh, the Iraq war was happening, the war with Iran, and Iraq was attacking Kurdish towns with poison gas, so killing thousands and thousands of people. Uh, but we are lucky enough to have in the studio with us now one woman who survived and escaped the genocide, came to the UK, and is now doing incredible things for other women in the region. Taban Shiresh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where you came from?
6: Well, it's it's a very long story, so I'll try and cut it quite (laughs) short. Um so in nineteen eighty six my we were caught with my mum and my grandparents and we were put in prison because my father was a Peshmerga, so a freedom fighter, but also a political activist poet. So we were on the most wanted list on Saddam Hussein's list, and the way they would try and capture the men was to capture the families to try and get information out of them and capture the men um and kill them so we were caught we were caught for two weeks and um the adults were interrogated to try and get information out of them they didn't give anything away and we were meant to be buried alive after the two weeks we had a miraculous escape and after that we went into hiding for about three months And it's at that point when my mum put her foot down and said, well, we've got the death sentence on us. We need to leave this country. I can't stay in hiding forever. Um, And then we made our way to be smuggled into Iran so we could go reach safety. And my dad was going to meet us, but he was poisoned by a husband and wife um, that Saddam Hussein had hired. And he and two other men were critically ill. Two died on the spot in the region uh, uh, at the actual dinner and they were smuggled into Iran as well and Amnesty International picked up on that story and flew him to the UK to get medical treatment and so he came to the UK in 1987 and we had to wait for him to survive and we ended up here in 1988 wow that's the short synopsis <laughs> the, the short version <laughs> of-
0: that is incredible and so your family have been in the UK since 1988 and you I guess grew up and were living until recently, I'm going to say a relatively normal life. You were a digital
6: project manager, had a good job. Tell us what you're doing now. So, I, I exactly, I had a, I'd say, a normal, safe, stable life. Um, ended up working in the city. And in August 2014, when the humanitarian crisis started in Iraq with ISIS going into the region, I decided to leave my city job and go back and take my son and help with the local foundation there and they did incredible work um on my first day we were delivering aid and rescuing people on a mountain on mount sinjar that were trapped on the mountain and for the next 15 months we, they built schools um camps um did so much and it was very frontline. so when i came back to the uk it was very very alien for me not to do anything so I decided to set up the Lotus Flower to help women and girls who were impacted by conflict and displacement. And I started it in my living room with no money. And I'm, I'm not exactly rich, so I don't have lots of money to invest in something like this. Um, I was lucky to have one donor to support one project to be started. And that project um, basically snowballed into now three centres. And in less than two years, we've managed to help over 3,000 women. What is the sort of things that you
0: see from those girls that have been through that trauma? What do they What do they come to the centres with? I guess.
6: So the women and girls that we're currently supporting in the three centres in um, in Kurdistan, Northern Iraq, is, they're all ISIS survivors. So they're the women and girls that have been rescued from ISIS. They were raped, sold on as sex slaves. Um, most well all of them have been forced to leave their homes Um, most have seen their families killed in front of them Um, so they're severely severely traumatized and the centers provide a safe social space for them to do so much Um, it brings them together so their shared experiences help them rebuild their lives but also the opportunities that we give in terms of education and livelihood programs and peace building and human rights access activities just gives them um, access to tools that they would never normally have. And actually, for women and girls, it's really difficult to be in camps because there's (laughs) nothing for them to do. They're literally inside the cabins or tents 24 hours, seven days a week. They've got cultural and social pressures on them. They've got um, other struggles like early um, forced marriage, uh, gender-based violence. So there's, there's a lot of pressure on them. And so the centres are critical to actually give them a hub where they can congregate, be social and learn things.
5: I'm just I'm listening to you just absolutely blown away by the work that, that you're doing. How did you decide that you were going to spend 15 months essentially doing this work? Because I'm sure there are lots of people that in a fleeting moment think I want to help. But it's, a diff- it's difficult to go from I want to help to I'm getting on a plane and I can now spend 15 months somewhere, especially with a child. How old was your son at the time?
6: So my son just finished primary school, so he would have been going on to 12. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, because of my past experience, mm-hmm. I've more or less come very close to death. Mm-hmm. Um, so that fear in me has, has somewhat gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just believe that something was pushing me there was an emptiness inside of me where I needed to experience that and those 15 months working with Rwanga in the region was one of the best times of my life and actually it was it was Mm life-changing because it reminded me of what I can do and what I've been through and what change is possible so it triggered so much and that triggered what I'm doing now I wouldn't have been able to help 3,000 women if I didn't have that experience so actually putting my life at risk just woke me up yeah
4: how do you how do you cope with operating in those two worlds because sometimes I feel I you know I live in a, a bubble of my life in London and I see pictures around the world and sometimes I really struggle to comprehend of people living in such you know desperate Uh, awful, you know, situations and not being able to live their life as freely as I can, but it's a a really difficult thing to to grasp. How do you find being over there and then coming back to your life in in London? Is it difficult to be between
6: those two worlds? It's really strange because when I first arrived in the UK, you end up developing, and you have certain experiences that blocked my past out completely, so I completely blocked it. And then in August 2014 that all came rushing back from what I'd experienced but when I came back 15 months later I couldn't function when I got to London for three months I would go on the tube just looking at people going why are you actually moaning there's nothing to be moaning Mm -hmm. about you've got Mm -hmm. nothing to moan about or it it really took three months for me to really adjust to the normal things that we do here and then suddenly I just realized actually this is the reality of it you can't choose what you're given in life um and you can't feel guilty about it what can i do to make a positive difference so i thought well i can be that bridge Mm -hmm. i can be that bridge between this world and that world instead of feeling guilty about stuff how do i turn something into a positive experience and enable that to help there Mm -hmm. so for example i don't know it could be an event that we do you know you normally go to events but I could charge tickets at that events which actually fundraises to what we're doing in the region so my perspective on it changed and that's what really helped.
4: And how easy is it for like for somebody like myself to go out there and and help is is that an easy thing for us to do should more people be be out there supporting and
6: creating that bridge? I think I, I mean I think it's easy I think it's easy if you know I I would recommend that you would go knowingly and with knowledge. Um, We've taken people out. We've just taken um, a few influencers out there. It's the region that we're in, the Kurdish region, is very safe. Uh, But obviously it would be very scary for somebody who doesn't know anything about the region. And this particular person that we took, you know, they had a whole perception of a war zone. Mm. But when they got there, they were completely surprised, completely surprised at what they were experiencing. Um, As with any region, you just have to be knowledgeable, stay safe, um, know where you're going, have contacts and local contacts. So if anyone was to go out there for us, we would make sure that they have all the information and they're connected to what we're doing to keep them safe as possible. Okay, well, we're going to keep chatting to Tavana after the break badass women's hour xl on talk radio she'll get you talking
0: and we're chatting to Tavan Sharesh um, all about her incredible life and the brilliant brilliant work she is doing with young female ISIS survivors um, tell us so you've set up centers to help them. you've got three at the moment what is happening in those centres?
6: What what skills are you giving them? What skills do you give these young women? These centres are a hub of activity. If you go and see and experience it in the morning, it will turn into daily exercise, and then it switches into adult literacy, and then it changes to a mini factory for sewing sisters, and then it turns into boxing sisters. So it really alternates, and we really make use of these spaces. For example, adult literacy is for women that have never been to school they've never ever picked up a pen in their life and they've never had the opportunity back in their regions because it was very rural and there's no adult education this course is oversubscribed because they all want to read and write and this is their opportunity they're thinking well i'm stuck in a camp i might as well learn something and basic things like knowing how to read who's calling them on their phone or prescriptions um and then sewing sisters this is a project that the women actually requested a lot of them have lost their mill or family members that were breadwinners for them um, and they want to be able to earn an income to support their children and so the ones that don't know how to read and write they'll go through the adult literacy to learn to do the measurements and then they do three months of intense sewing and then we give them a sewing machine but we don't actually just stop there we bring local contracts into the camp so they have contracts to work in and earn an income, Mm -hmm. so to finish the whole market linkage um, circle. And then the daily exercise, I think, is so important because they don't have anywhere to do any form of exercise, and you've got cultural pressures that won't allow them to do it outside the Mm -hmm. centres, so we thought we'd bring it inside the centres. We do lots of awareness sessions, empowerment sessions, legal, health, hygiene, and anything that they actually require and i don't try and impose things on them it's more we work collaboratively to figure out what they want and what they need for example next year we might be going to bangladesh to set up a center there and i can't say oh actually what we've implemented the projects that we've implemented in kurdistan will work in bangladesh because you'd need to do an assessment to see what will work there
5: how do you determine where to set the centers up so going so uh, so bangladesh for example why, why there
6: because it mainly comes from people, that I mean, obviously, where the humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. exists, mm-hmm. Um, where camps are, because mm-hmm. we specifically set up centres inside camps. camps. Right. Okay. Um, so wherever there's a camp around the world, but where, where there's more desperate need, mm-hmm. so that service is not given to a full degree. We've had a few people approach us for Bangladesh and ask us to set, set up a centre there, mm-hmm. Um so for a few people to come and ask us there must be clearly a need and we'd need to go out and do an assessment but with Kurdistan because I was there for 15 months I knew the immense Mm -hmm. need Um, and so I started from where I knew.
0: Can I ask you you obviously you were born in Iraq and you had this you know incredibly terrifying childhood experience of having to flee and being arrested and being—I mean, just on the Saddam Hussein's most wanted list. How did you feel about Iraq when you were growing up? And did your experience, has
6: your experience there now changed that? Um, I so Iraq as a whole—it's it's the Kurdish region. So I'm Kurdish, and yeah. it's often when somebody asks me where you're from, I'd say I'm Kurdish, yeah. and they'd say where's that yeah Kurdistan but it's not on the map I know but it's still Kurdistan (laughs) to me (laughs) so that has been also that's been a massive part of my childhood growing up is not having where you're from on the map and so you're put into a region that's actually yours but not yours Um, but we've always been very connected to that region I think from what I've experienced in my past you can't completely forget it but i think one thing that i was taught through my family was to you know be 50 50 i'm this is home for me as well the uk is home and so i've settled here but you could never forget your roots as well so i think the way the way that i'm working now is being that built bridge between two places that i call home so tell us we
0: have to ask about boxing it doesn't seem likely to me that boxing is being taught in your incredible camps in Kurdistan,
6: but it is. How did that come about? Yes. So the women and girls that we work with are, you know, they, they faced so much trauma yeah. Um, they've got so many emotions trapped in them. We offer them other mental health services and we try and do things which are good for mental health, but not directly. This is therapy as well. Um, Because therapy is taken in different forms in different cultures. And I thought boxing is amazing. Why not boxing? Because it's good for your mental health. It's good for your confidence boosting. It will channel your energy, that emotion, that anger that they've got inside them. It ticks every single box. Why don't we do this? Um, And I think it would be really, really good for this group of women. And then we could train some women inside the camps to become instructors and then we can hire them and they can be leading the sessions going forward so it turns into an income generating project and so we started it tested it out and it was really 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 well received but obviously the issue that we're facing is that there's no female boxing instructors in the region Mm. so this is why we need Kathy Brown to come and help us teach the women to become instructors so they can continue um the 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 sessions but how come boxing because I'm thinking to myself well there's
4: lots of different sports or exercise that you could do and train other people to do so what was it that really anchored boxing for you as being the like the right sport to to do it
6: um maybe because it doesn't exist in the region right Yeah. yeah um I think you know it's the, the, the Kurds are very well known for having female fighters around the world especially with what went mm-hmm. on recently um, so I thought well I'm not going to endorse fighting I, obviously you can't as an NGO <laughs> but what, what, what kind of sport gives that sense of strength to someone, gives that strength back to them and it's also breaking some sort of boundary in that region but sending a very strong message as well mm. um, and boxing just seem to be the right sport for that I I, it doesn't exist in the region and I don't see why it shouldn't Mm -hmm. um it's been very well received we've had no negativity towards it and I don't think anyone would dare would they (laughs) punch on the nose yeah
0: what happens kind of after this though do you then need to create kind of female boxing centers
6: does it No, we will continue to offer it in our centres as a project. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the the beauty of the centres inside camps is you don't realise how desperately it's needed. And actually international uh, organisations, once the first phase of the humanitarian crisis is over, they tend to leave. Mm -hmm. And they tend to leave these centres or, you know, spaces... And once they've left it, for me, I, I can't believe it because I'm thinking, well, hold on, there's still people here. They're going to be here for a yeah. good few years. They still need some sort of support. And so that's why we focused on long-term support within the actual centres inside camps. Um, and I don't think we need separate boxing centres. We can yeah. implement it in, in our centres as a project. Just, uh,
5: just, uh, just amazing, and I'm do you need equipment other than kathy because you need you need the trainers do you need equipment what other resources do you need or is it is it just you need a w- woman on the ground that can show show all the other women the basics so at the moment we need to raise
6: funds mm-hmm. to help us get kathy to the region to mm-hmm. train them but also kathy wants to raise enough to sustain one whole women's center yeah so we're our target for that is forty thousand. Mm-hmm. um so the first priority would be to get Kathy out there so we can actually start training the women mm. to become instructors uh, equipment equipment we would love equipment it's a little bit harder shipping that equipment across mm. so ideally the funds are available so we can buy it there Right. Um, so that would be the best option mm-hmm. um but I think at the moment it's more fundraising to get the centre running and to get Kathy out there to train the women so they can earn an income. And part of the money that we raise will be for the salary of the person that we train for, um, the boxing instructor, who will be someone from within the camp.
5: I love the fact that all of the work that you're doing, you're thinking about sustainability and supporting the women to generate their own incomes, because I guess the dream with your work is that you no longer need to be there because it means the women and their families have returned to somewhere that they consider home and, and set up a life. And so that element of teaching them how to generate income and have things that support them for, for the rest of their lives and their futures is really important versus the sticky plaster approach. Yeah. I think for me,
6: that also comes from personal experience. Mm. Um, I'm a single mum and the only thing that's got me through my life is being able to work and earning an income and so and that's not possible if I didn't have the skills if I didn't know the skills so for me from a personal perspective I know how important that is and there isn't sadly in many parts of the world there isn't that much support for women and you know a lot of single mums and girls for that matter so I think the only way to help them is to give them the tools to be able to train in some sort of way where they can earn an income because that income is their freedom Mm -hmm. and their future
0: I agree. Taman, it's been absolutely amazing having you in the studio with us. Thank you. If people want to find out more about the project, if they want to donate,
6: where should they be looking? So if they want to find out more about the project and us, they can go to www.thelotusflower.org. And then if they want to donate, it's www.thelotusflower.org forward slash donate Boxing Sisters.
0: Fabulous. Thank you, thank you so much. It is an incredible life story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And thank you. Just thank you for doing all the great work you're doing. Yeah, thank Always you for really enjoyed, enjoyed listening to <laughs> you. One,
2: two, three, four.
0: This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love.